previously on Popping Collars. I, I feel like I just came out of like a nine-hour movie in the in the movie theaters, right? Because yeah. I watched the entire thing today from like 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Just for you fans out there, no shower. And, uh, <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> no brushing that of teeth. <laughs> you can smell it over the airwaves. Welcome to Popping Collars, podcast that lives in the space between meaning and culture. My name is Greg Knight. This is our 75th episode, which means that it's time for our traditional end-of-the-season recap show. Betsy, Liz, Ricardo, and I thank you so much for joining us in these conversations. Also, we want to extend a special thanks to the 27 guests who joined us over the course of the last year talking about maybe the widest variety of topics we've ever explored over the course of our first three seasons. So sit back as we go in the Wayback Machine to take a listen to some of the highlights of Popping Collars Season 3. So authenticity, what I have been told time and again about myself from parishioners is we love that you just are your authentic self everywhere and that that draws people. And so that's, I'm going to just say maybe that's my superpower. And that means being vulnerable. That means being open. That means bringing your little, my little geeky pleasures uh, to bear on things. But I think, you know, the way I found my way back to faith in my, you know, late 20s, early 30s was through pop culture. I, I think you, in some ways, I would argue that pop culture can make religion more authentic. Uh, <laughs> at least for me, you know, I was like, well, Jesus, yeah, I grew up there. Yeah, I like Jesus. I just don't know if I really believe, etc. But then, as I, I think I've said this before on this show, I started listening to Gillian Welch, Emmylou Harris, Lucinda Williams, Patty Griffin, and their songs about faith and their songs about struggles with, you know, sin and life and afterlife and all of that. And that actually strengthened my faith and brought me back to church eventually because I sort of trusted their authentic voices because they weren't, you know, they weren't trying to proselytize. They were just speaking their truth. And somehow through that, I, you know, it's, it, 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 it entered my heart and brain. And then I wound up going back to church and, and feeling stronger in my faith because of the lyrics to their songs. I sort of hope that when, if, if we bring to bear pop culture on our church ministry on our ministries be it in sermons or youth groups or retreats or whatever people will feel closer to their faith and i also think that pop culture allows us to be a little bit messier and make some mistakes and say some things that are a little bit heretical um because it's not trying to be perfect when I look at Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there's so much Christian iconography in there, and it's so, like, just off, and it doesn't completely match. And that's okay in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and it's useful and it's helpful to have that kind of messy space, whereas I feel like in church we so often are trying so hard to get everything exactly correct. 
Well, it's it's, it's the power of narrative. And, and and if you just look around, there are little. Do you remember in Facebook a couple of years ago? It used to be called your wall, right? And did you notice that at some point we went from calling it a wall to a timeline? I mean, not to get too geeky here, but like there's a, a philosopher who um, Charles Taylor, who writes a lot about secularization of our culture. And his book, The Secular Age, is just like a kind of go-to for for doing philosophy. And one of the things he argues is that for hundreds and hundreds of years, we lived in what was called an enchanted world. You had a grand narrative, whether it was that there is a god or even for your national identities. And he just argues that in the modern period and certainly the postmodern period, we're in a disenchanted age now. There just aren't. There's there's no trust in institutions. There's no trust in the narratives that come from institutions. You're not going to be anybody's fool. And as a result, people are starving for narrative because they've been told and educated that narratives are lies and they come from institutions which have more of a chance of hurting you or ignoring you or marginalizing you than they do of feeding you. So pack up your stuff and go. So you've got all these people who packed up their stuff and went right from religion, from a political party. So you're independent or you're unaffiliated or whatever. And you buy the Girl Scout cookies and you love other institutions that you think are not dangerous to the world, but most of them you're not interested in, but we lost the narrative. And that's where I feel like when I walk into a a church full of people that want to hear about Harry Potter, I know they really want to hear about Harry Potter because they've either read it or they've heard, but I also know that they're absolutely hungry for grand narratives. I'm just reminded again of one of the reasons that I love this show so much is that it just has the Hebrew Bible written all over it, right? I mean, it's just Old Testament trope after Old Testament trope after Old Testament trope. And so much of the Hebrew Bible is about the exile, right? And that's exactly this kind of communal disaster event. How people deal with that, uh, you get books like Job, you get a very different book like Ecclesiastes, you get something like Proverbs. Uh, all of these kind of post-exilic books that try and make sense of the world after it has completely fallen apart. What's really cool about this show is that there's no straight path. And the way that it comes off as art is it feels very surreal when you're watching it. So when Kevin dies, right. those those are very surreal episodes when you're experiencing his Afterlife, alternative assassin. life, yeah, his international assassin life, which you just kind of have to go with, you do, because that's how he's going to tell this story of his disaster. And and I think that I think that uh, surreal pop art is good. I think that it's ultimately good for us because it allows us to to recognize that not everything has to have this clean, clear path. Not everything has to be Act One, Act Two, Act Three. There are other ways of telling stories. I think the God figure right. even says at one point, doesn't he, somewhere in there, that the, the character that is God, right, that kind of like Henri, enigmatic, is he God, is he not God? He even says at one point to somebody, you can't think in straight lines. You know, back in the day, Betsy and I ran an amazing fantasy football team it was pretty- <laughs> together. It was a great team. And one of the players that took us to a championship in our fantasy football league was Tim Tebow. Tim who Tebow. that boy, all that guy ever did was win football games. And I listened on ESPN for years and years and years about how he's the worst football player ever in the history of the NFL and he needs to be kicked out and all of this stuff. 
And eventually that became true because people said it over and over again. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter what the data showed. It didn't matter the fact that Betsy and I were holding fantasy football championships, riding on the back of Tim Tebow to win it. Yes. None of that mattered. It was, just, it was just the fact that people said the narrative over and over again that got him kicked out of the league. Well, and that's happening in news news now, right? I mean, it's the same thing. You say a thing enough and people start to believe it's true. And I would guess that when you ask people why they did not vote for a particular candidate in the presidential election, many of the things that they would say aren't actually true. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're not actually factual. Well, and I'm thinking of, um, on a darker note, um, Charlottesville a couple of weeks ago, um, we didn't, we maybe weren't all gathered around televisions at the same time watching it, but we were all concerned and uh, thinking and sort of receiving information about that at the same time, just in different ways. But anyway, it just made me think, Greg, those major events that you described both had to do with race and how that was uh, um, a cultural conversation that was happening sort of across the country at that time. And I think sort of thinking that we were making strides and thinking that things were changing, or at least that the sort of sin of racism was being exposed in a big way, like through Rodney King, Um, you know, and now here we are a long time later and we have not gotten that far. I want to raise my hand and say at the time I was entirely oblivious of the racial element of the L.A. riots and the O.J. Simpson trial, really? which is pretty hard to fathom now. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think we just thought those were made for television. Wow. Another world. You know, we've we've spent a lot of time this year on this podcast even trying to figure out, like, well, how did we get here? Like, how did we get to the events of Charlottesville and stuff? And the answer is that it's never, it's not one thing. It's a culmination of a bunch of things that get you to this point. I don't know. I, I, I start to kind of piece those things together in the 90s when all of a sudden everything is, everything is on television. Everything is kind of on the record. I mean, I would not, I still, the part that just gets me, there's a lot of this that gets me, but I think about the Access Hollywood tapes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And how vulgar those were. And I know that everybody had a variety of responses to them. But to me, it, I mean, it took a long time before I was able to even say those. Brother James was in the car with me when I when we read oh. it. And I, I couldn't read it out loud. I was like, you guys, it's bad, but I can't say it out loud. That's how vulgar it was for me. Mm-hmm. So to think that Billy Bush got fired from a daytime television show for being in the same room as somebody who's joking about sexual assault and the person who made the joke was elected president that preaches right that preaches you have to preach on that but ha- but it's so complicated like in my church we spend a, we spend you know over the last few years we've spent a lot of time on listening and and we've done a lot of um trainings and compassionate listening and you know it's and it, i think that's connected it's kind of like can we sit with our feelings for a while and mm-hmm. not weigh in like maybe just resist that temptation to just like boom here's my take you know and well i mean first of all let's get real episcopal priests who just have mdivs we're not experts in anything either nope Really, we're not. We're professionals. We, have, but you know, we're, we're not. Sure, 
That's, That's why we're doing this podcast. Uh-oh. That's right. Uh-oh. Watch out. <laughs> so let's put that aside. Um, so, but anyway, I have some level of expertise in some things and yes, no is. expertise in most things. So I've been wondering about um, about this issue of, of weighing in and sort of what it's doing to all of us. And I had this fantasy today that I would spend the whole year reading, only posting long reads and just telling people, I mean, like real critical journalism about cultural issues. Because what I keep saying to people when I'm asked about, you know, what happened? What do you think? Why, why was this the result of the election? All that I know is that it's complicated. And I don't understand it. It is not because I'm stupid that I don't understand it and that I don't want to weigh in. It's because it's so complicated and I really don't understand it. And what would happen if everybody committed to sort of actually an increased intellectualism and increased reliance on expertise when it came to really sorting out what's happening in other parts of our country that have caused this kind of discord? Robots, I used to know the code to make you and cry. You know what it makes me think of, guys? It makes me think of professional wrestling and <laughs> <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and the fact that the easiest story to tell is here's the, here's your hero and yeah. here's your dastardly villain. And you want to cheer for your hero and you want to boo your villain. And I just wonder if our brains are geared that way. It's like, well, here are the good guys. So it doesn't matter what they do. They are good. And here are the bad guys. And it doesn't matter what they do. They are bad. Like, do our brains just, just see a story and start to categorize people right away? That's certainly how tribalism seems to work. And we're hearing a lot of that (laughs) these days. Yeah. And Twitter. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I think that is how our brains work, and I think it's it's part of the work of faith and religion to help us learn how to undo that, mm. which we don't always do well. But um, that seems to me to be the the kind of core of what we're we as faith leaders are to be about is to help people to sort of see their way into that kind of non-dual thinking that does come so very, very naturally to us. And something like Battlestar really does help in certain ways because everybody is ambiguous. There is no pure good person. And even, you know, even Baltar, who you really want to hate, kind of end up not hating as much as you would like. So first of all, my 19th century husband, as we were saying before, he is very much a fan of the daily office, morning and evening prayer every day, pretty much without fail. He always says, you, you need to read it from the book, sweetie. And I'll say, but I was on the subway train and I really thought I have time for morning prayer. And, you know, this is when I was in San Francisco and there was just enough time to recite the office. And he said, but if you're doing that, you're not making any public witness. You just look like everyone else who's looking down at their phone. And even though you bow and cross yourself, people are going to say, what is he doing playing some video game uh, <laughs> where you have to do these actions? And so it's funny because he saw he saw using the book, I guess, in public as, as a witness. Now, I, I had to actually use my phone once uh, visiting someone at the hospital because I, I didn't have the book and I wanted to find a prayer. and. It, it, it was um, 
it was the ECP, I think it's called, whatever that app is. And I had a heck of a time finding what I wanted. So I wound up making up prayers. Uh, but it was a little embarrassing. And I apologize profusely for whipping out the phone to you know, start praying with someone. And I wonder if, especially with this person who's of an older generation, that wasn't really a turnoff. Whereas, who knows, maybe with someone young, they'd be like, oh, my God, the priest uses his smartphone for prayers. That's someone I would go to church with if I don't die in this hospital bed. I mean, straight up the clothes, friends. Mm. <laughs> the bringing back the papal tiara from Washington. It. It, oh, yeah, that... My, I think my favorite outfit was the sunglasses with the green velvet gloves with the rings and then the cope. That was my favorite outfit, personally. My favorite outfit was the white tracksuit. And um, my, my favorite moment was when he and his best friend sort of broke free to sort of ro- roam around Rome. And they run into the prostitute and she says, um, you two look like a couple of priests. And he says, we're not priests. Would priests wear tracksuits? That was just one of my favorite. I thought it was delightful. And I kept wondering, how does he have all these white garments that he's not getting dirty? Because that's what popes wear. Francis never wears anything other than white. Benedict never wore anything other than white. I mean, when you have all those nuns who are doing your laundry, you can wear white as much as you want. (laughs) That is true. I don't even buy white clothing. That's what I need. I need a bunch of nuns to do my laundry in order to get me, like, the courage to buy white jeans or something. My afterlife would include frozen yogurt. It would include Netflix. It would include wine. It would include great Nebraska sunrises and sunsets, which it's is like you're in heaven right now, Liz. I, well, it, it really is. <laughs> it, is, it is a cornfield, right? It's a cornfield somewhere. I'm just saying. It's the gorgeous Nebraska sandhills. Hashtag blessed. That's my life. <laughs> um, but honestly, uh, last week, Sarah and I both had this experience. We had our annual clergy retreat um, at a retreat center in Schuyler, Nebraska, which is in the midst of cornfields. And we did like an old-fashioned hymn sing around the piano in the chapel one night. And um, it was really an image, like it, it was a, f- a feeling of what um, some aspect of heaven must feel like. This people really raising their voices in song in a, in a joyful way. Bad singers and good singers both, like everyone kind of blending together. You know, it wasn't intended to be worship. It was just intended to be kind of a fun activity. And it was really, really glorious. Like, in my mind, yeah, they can be comparable. Like, this idea of relics and this idea of an original Luke Skywalker in a box, it can be comparable for for some people who transfer that kind of meaning to it. I, w- I would say that that's a problem for us. And especially when you think about, like, the most recent Star Wars movies that are so obviously made for cross-marketing purposes, that there were really intentional decisions made in the film so that there could be a particular kind of marketing. And um, I believe that that machine, that sort of um, consumerist machine is sinful in its very nature, just like written right into it. So that makes me nerd. Like, I'm not saying that Jediism 
a person couldn't follow that as their religion. I suppose they could, but Mm -hmm. um, that makes me really nervous that um, that sort of capitalistic system could be become that spiritually magnetic. Because you're talking about experiential objects, right? Um, and, yeah. and action figure can be experiential. Then there's a whole world of collecting that's around props and things that have originally been on movie sets, right? Right. So yeah, like, like the dress that, that someone wore. Or, right. Yeah. Or like this is my brick from you know the Berlin Wall, or this was my you know like the these are the things. These are the stones where Jesus walked. You know that experiencing and touching something that somebody else an actor or something that's really important to you experience, then there's, there's a whole other level in, as opposed to a, Oh, well, this is my one Luke Skywalker doll of thousands of them. You know, this is the prop that this happened on. And we, that human experience, we're drawn to that things that have touched things that we love dearly. So when I was little, uh, not little, but I was I was like twelve or thirteen, and I was reading a lot of the Stephen King books, like you know the big The Stand and you know Salem's Lot and It. And uh, my mo- my mother, who didn't speak English, could tell from the book covers that they were horror. You know, they were horror books, and she would say, well, "Why are you reading that? You should be reading the Bible." <laughs> I remember just being in a particularly sassy mood one day and being like, "Bible's not fun. This is more fun." <laughs> and so I had to kind of sneak it sometimes and uh, do it in my room or whatever. And uh, But I remember thinking, I, I did say that. And, you know, there's some truth to that. You know, the Bible does have its moments. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it doesn't compare with people under a dome suffocating, I guess. I don't know. But uh, so that's one thing. It's just, it's just a memory. So that I, 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 I kind of want to line, like, where do Christian scientists fall or are they not even in the discussion? And does Scientology yeah. fit in at all? And are there forms of, you know, we're talking about forms of Christianity. Yeah. But it, it, at what point does it become, if there's a, if there's a cult of personality rather than a, a, a cult of Jesus? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's direct. What's the answer? <laughs> What's the answer? What's the answer? You know what I'm asking, right? Yeah, no, I know, I know what you're asking. I mean... You know, let's say we want our kids to be part of our own religion. They, we don't want them going off and doing joining some weird group. Okay, so so maybe one bound one boundary is that um, youth are to some large to a large degree doing the same thing that the parents do. You know, and I can say that you know because it makes us all happy. But we all have been youth, and we know that you know youth tend to really enjoy very intense forms of of religion and sometimes they they join bible study groups that get very intense uh, a boundary would be if it's starting to talk about if it's starting to prepare about for the end of the world that's probably a bad sign um i you know i i could say that but on the other hand you know you guys know the new testament i mean the whole thing is like it's oriented towards the, the end, end of the It's coming, world. yeah. So it's <laughs> coming. There's one line uh, from the first movie. Uh, Vin Diesel has it. Uh, and he says, uh, he's, he's talking with Paul Walker, and he says, you know, I live my life uh, a quarter mile at a time. Uh, talking about street racing. And he says, for the 10 seconds or less that I'm racing... I feel free. 
And I thought, you know, that explains a lot about car culture that I never understood because I was never a gearhead. So I, I didn't get why people would put so much money into things that were very temporary. Like a car isn't going to last you very long. Like you're going to get a certain amount of mileage out of it and then it's going to fail and then you'll have to buy a new car. Um, and, you know, people would put in thousands and thousands of dollars into these racing cars to soup them up and, and make them something. And it's because it's because so much of the lives of that were sort of on the screen in this movie were just temporary lives. I mean, there, there was no sense that these people would ever sort of grow up or, mm-hmm. or, or grow in any way. Like they were, this was their life and their life was, was lived in the span of 10 seconds from one end of the street until they got to the other end of the street. About 70% of the time, I begin a sermon with something humorous uh, or that I think will make people laugh because actually it puts me at ease. I have this theory um, that if you want people to hear something in a sermon, you kind of loosen them up a little like the, the the joke I had with the former rector is I rub their belly and then I stick the knife in. And so, um, Yikes. I know. Sorry. Oh my Lord. Janked over in the long Not Shut going to church. <laughs> well, they keep coming back. They do. They love it. They can't get they enough. Love they it. love that belly rub must be good. So I, I start with a joke, right? I start with a joke or I start with a, and then often it's at my own expense because those are actually the easiest ones because I'm so freaking mortal uh, human. But then I say something serious and often it catches people by surprise. And because they're at this level of ha ha ha, and I'll say, it's like, you, you've got to do this or your life is at stake. They're like, mm. and, um, and then they, I think it reaches them in a way they might not let it. I wrote down this note while watching the final episode. I wrote, suffering is the key to experience. Yeah. Suffering is the key to freedom. That idea of, well, let's burn up in this tent together so we can go, you know, I need to be shot and killed so that I can then get to this next place of of freedom. That suffering, I think, not only for the human beings in the story, but for the hosts, that there's an element of suffering as a door to freedom. I got really nervous about that part. I was like, okay, we have to treat that idea really carefully, mm-hmm. right? right? Not just in Westworld, but like in general. In life in general. Um, I mean, and I think about in your world, you know, that people have all kinds of narratives around suffering and, and you know, the um, the odyssey of how I've ended up in this place. For what Makes purpose. Right. And, and, but we also do know uh, resilience theory does tell us that people are stronger when they've had to overcome something. Mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily the same thing as we all have to suffer so that we can be really human. I, I was I, in my poking around and reading and researching for this. You know, the Atlantic has loved writing about the show. They've done some really good pieces. They do a great piece on guilt about the show and they talked a lot about the idea of complicity in this world that there's this element of like when when uh when june's being fired from her job and everyone's being fired and the guy's just standing there going you know everyone made me do it 
you know, I can't do anything about it. I'm sorry. Yeah, and that they reference along the way in the flashbacks as the world is deteriorating. We should have done something when this happened. We should have done something when this happened. We should have run when this happened. And then that very disturbing element of the salvaging where all the handmaids kill that guy oh, wow. who raped the handmaid. Evidently, that's what they were told, right? So it just that element of when we pray in the church, you know, the evil we have done and the evil done on our behalf, like there's a, they're really dragging you in to be complicit in the slow takedown of, as Ben said, all that you know and love. And I find that to be the most, the thing that hits me most pointedly as somebody living today and thinking about my life today. It was right at water level. I mm-hmm. remember that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the choice was about. Um, I do know that it gave me a sense of, it was like, it could go either way. He could fall under the water or mm. he could float. And what to me was key in that scene was Juan saying to him a couple of times, he's like, don't worry, I've got you. Nothing is going to happen to you trust me and just kind of let go and let yourself float that to me was kind of the 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 key thing about that scene like how often did this kid have that that um that promise and have it kept in his life i've got you and you don't have to worry Uh, for me i think sherlock is all about flirting um (laughs) That is to say, I mean, you've got Watson and he's got this very complicated relationship with Sherlock. And the question is, like, how much is he going to be intimate? How much is he going to trust? You know, when he knows he gets all of these benefits, I mean, there's the danger, there's the excitement, you know, there's more control over your world. There's Um, fame. There's fame. So, I mean, for me, it's sort of like Sherlock is this, this god figure who's very appealing and uh, like like romantically appealing, but also dangerous because powerful. And so the question is, how much is John going to enter into this world of Sherlock, which, you know, at first glance seems to be the best view of the world. But then when he starts getting into it, there's all of these, you know, dark places. Mm-hmm. And does he want to know the dark places are there? And is that about reality or is that about illusion? How do we deal with the world when opening your eyes uh, can cause pain as well as as joy. Family was less of a thing for me in Stranger Things two than uh, the word home. Then okay. eleven kept, eleven slash Jane kept saying home. She's trying to figure out what home is. Hopper calls where they are home and she repeats it. Then she meets Kali, who's like her sister, quote, sister. And she says, you're home. And she says, home. And then she realizes, I think maybe her home is where her friends, her four friends are. And she calls that home on her own. And I've struggled with senses of home in my life because I've moved around so much. What is it, what is it that makes something home? You know, I go to a new parish like I have been, and the people who say, I've been here since 1971. And some of them, like, I was baptized here. I got married here and confirmed and, you know, et cetera. I said, well, all you got to do is get ordained uh, and and die. (laughs) And um, 
but that hasn't been my experience. And I, I don't know. I'm just saying it's, it's interesting that there are some people like those four boys for whom home is pretty solid. And then there are people who will walk through our church doors like L for whom mm -hmm. they've never had a sense of home. And how do we welcome that uh, if we've felt ensconced in a parish for decades? Yeah, I got a new game. Now do you want to play? I hear them all say that girl is crazy. The Way of the Pilgrim is um, essentially a story of, you know, Russia has a tradition of... Uh, they don't in the Orthodox Church. They don't really have orders of monks. They have individual monasteries, and one of the outgrowths of that is that they have a form of monasticism in which a single monk kind of wanders around the countryside, saying the Jesus prayer over and over again. That's and kind of like what you it's do. It's kind of right like now. what I'm doing in Nebraska, in Nebraska right? yeah. and uh, and helps whoever he encounters along the way in whatever way they need it. So if somebody needs spiritual help, he gives them some spiritual advice. If a farmer needs help at the harvest, he helps harvest. Uh, if a barn's falling down, he helps build it up. If somebody's hungry, he gives them food like that. Right. And then he always returns to the Jesus prayer. So this was written in the 19th century in Russia. It gets translated into English in the 1920s, um, as, as well as into French, with the great Russian migration out of the Soviet Union to England and to France. And it starts, it really starts the Jesus prayer movement in uh, the Western church. The Jesus prayer is Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. And you just keep repeating that as a mantra. They use a string of cords, uh, wool cords that are tied together. It's like a, like the Marian rosary, except that it's usually wool. And on each knot, they just keep saying that Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ. Son of God, have mercy. I mean, the point of it is to get to what the Russians call the silence of the heart, that place of where you've let go of all of your thoughts. You haven't tried to suppress them or pretend they're not there, but you simply are letting go of it all so that you can become Christ to whoever you encounter. For, for those who are listening, the, the communion was frequently talked about um, as being broken apart into three segments. You have a, the first stretch, it's physical, as your body's being you know, acclimated to this new new way of life the next month or so. Uh, this, the, the middle third, or the, you know, the, the second portion is considered you know, uh, more, more mental. And then you have the third third, the last part is, is spiritual. You're really kind of really looking at who you are from a, from a heart standpoint. And for me, the mental and the spiritual kind of overlapped a bit in the Maseta where there was this, this stretching of, of my soul that really kind of ripped apart um, who I was and, and opened up uh, a lens that looked at who I was versus who I wanted to be. I had, I had, left, a, I had left at home a job that was waiting for me, a very stressful environment that really had, had consumed me. I, I should say I had allowed it to consume me. And my family had suffered pretty remarkably. Um, I had been very neglectful, very dismissive, very distant. And I'd given my children and my wife a reason to question my love for them. And in, the, in that desert stretch, I, I saw in a, a moment of just, I don't know how to describe it, just a moment where 
it's almost like even though I could see where I was walking down the trail, there's just millions of tiny TV screens behind my eyes just showing me every moment that I had failed my wife and my kids. Mm. And it hit me all at once. It was just like a, a, a tidal wave of grief and anger at who I was and pain and disappointment and just recognition of lots of moments of failure. Man, there was no hiding from it. There was no, there was no way to escape who I was. And that's one of the beauties of pilgrimage is that you get to a point where you, you can no longer hide from yourself. And I, we, we, we get into a little albergue and I bust out our iPod or, or uh, iPad and I make a Skype call to my family hoping that they're, that they're awake. And my, my kids answer. They're excited. We say hi. I apologize for stuff. They're not even processing why I'm apologizing, but I needed to tell them I'm sorry, right? But then my kids leave and it's just my wife and I. But I just told her, I just said, you know, I said, honey, I, I'm so sorry for all the times I've broken your heart. And I know there have been many. And she said, if you never broke my heart, how would I learn to love you more? Mm. What happened in that was that, okay, okay, there's, there's a capacity of love that people are capable of. There is a, there's a type of love people can, can, can engage in where they're willing to love us in spite of us. Not the good, but all, right? And I took that back as that lesson my wife taught me from who knows how many thousand miles away over a little, you know, pixelated message of this is what we're called to. This is what we're capable of. We can love one another in spite of our differences, in spite of our failures. And that's the closest thing we're going to get here on earth to experiencing God's love through the hands and feet of another human being when they choose to love us in spite of who we are. Well, I don't like where this conversation is going because I like to believe I'm very special. <laughs> uh, and I, I just couldn't help but just like remember the quote from Fight Club. You are not special. You're not beautiful. You're not a unique, beautiful snowflake. You're the same decaying organic matter as everything else. We're all part of the same compost heap. We're all singing, all dancing, crap of the world. <laughs> and I hated that quote so much because it made me feel not special. And you guys are bringing up the feel- that feeling all over again. <laughs> But well, you are special because you're created in the image and likeness of a God who loves you. Like that is special. That alone right. is special. Each one of us is special in that really miraculous and wonderful way. But and, I'm going to be forgotten. <laughs> and you will be forgotten. I mean, I think that that's, that's the beauty of what we do, right? As, as sort of religious people, as, as people who... Um, I always like to say uh, we're called to be lovers of people. And when we do that, I think that I think that we have to recognize that two things are very true. You are created in the image of God and you will be forgotten. Like those two things are true and it's okay. Like it's okay for those things to be true. Just like, yeah, you're, you're created, you know, you, you are the same crap that the rest of the world is made of, but you're also as a carbon based life form you're you're the same thing that stars are made of too like these things are both true well so just really quickly now now that for the future you guys in case i die what i want on my tombstone is i am made as the same organic form of the stars or whatever greg says i like that i want that on my tombstone guys two then three said so randomly just a fantasy on repeat you see I don't you need so desperately 
need a family to keep our lonely boy searching for a home. Three generations, oh, where can they be? This has been Popping Collars for this season. We're going to be taking a few months off to relax, recharge the batteries, and more importantly, Figure out some great topics when we return for Season 4. In the meantime, remember, you can find us on our website, poppingcollarspodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash poppingcollars. And you can find us on Twitter at poppingcollars. Our podcast is featured on all of the apps where you typically find your podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, etc. We're also featured on episcopalcafe.com as part of their podcasting network where our partners at Priest Pulse, To Feminists Annotate the Bible, and From All Points... We'll see you through the next few months while we're sipping margaritas by the pool. Remember, we love Episcopal Cafe, and we know you will as well. Check them out for all your Episcopal news needs and beyond. And with that, that is Season 3 of Popping Collars in the books. Uh, Keep those collars popped, everyone, and we'll see you in a few months.